Amen. Thank you, first singers. Great to worship with you all this evening, and thank you for sharing uh, with us so well and leading us in worship. We continue this evening in our sermon series in the book of Acts. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 8, we continue in our series, The Gospel on the Move. The Gospel on the Move. We jump in to chapter 8, having just encountered, lived through, walked together last Sunday evening through the story of Stephen. And we ended last week with that one priest who seemed to be in charge of affairs, standing at Stephen's death, standing at Stephen's stoning, with everyone's coats laying at his feet, giving his stamp of approval We ended last week with Saul watching as Stephen became the first martyr of the church. Chapter 8 jumps right into the end of that story, telling us that Saul approved of killing him. That's where we've marked out these chapters. They were added later to the original text, but chapter 8, verse 1, sums up what has just happened. That at the death of Stephen, we meet A man named Saul. We were reminded last week that Saul's conversion, one of the most well-known conversion stories in all of history, much less the Bible, is known so well and marked by his Damascus Road experience, but it may very well have begun not on that lonely road, but watching as one faithful servant was willing to stick with his faith even unto death. And so this chapter begins telling us that on that day, That same day that Stephen is stoned and Saul approves, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. So the opposition to the Christians has been gaining momentum throughout our series. All the way going back to chapter 4 and especially up into chapter 6, this persecution has been gaining momentum. Momentum. Back in chapter 4, verse 21, there was a warning. In chapter 5, verse 40, we got a flogging. Last week we heard the the trial of Stephen, and the ultimate result was his death. Things have been getting worse. And this time, it's not just the officials, it's not the rulers leading the way, the crowd is behind them. The officials have the backing of all the people. So this violent persecution erupts. The Christians are forced to flee Jerusalem and all except the apostles scatter. The early church father Tertullian is quoted as having said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And now that seed will be scattered. Like seeds thrown into soil, the believers are scattered by persecution, pushed out through all the lands. As you read in chapter 8, verse 1, that they're scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, it ought to take you back. 8, 1, mirrors chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said this would happen, commissioned that it would happen, maybe even prophetically said that it would happen, that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to Judea and Samaria also. And here is that second part 
of Jesus' commission to them back in Acts 1-8 coming to fulfillment. Not because they have in all of their wisdom devised a, a mission strategy to send themselves into Judea and Samaria, but because the circumstances of their persecution have forced them out into the world. It tells us the apostles were able to stay probably because these were all of the uh, Aramaic-speaking apostles who were not in affront to the Jewish leadership. It's these Greek-speaking Jews that have really caused the problem, the Hellenists from the last chapter, of which Stephen is one. And so they're forced, these Greek-speaking Hellenist brothers like Philip, to flee the city. And they scatter like seed, fulfilling Jesus' commission and calling the church into its new stage of witness. And so verse 2 says, as we continue learning about Saul, that devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. It's the third reference to Saul in just six verses. We're meeting a persecutor. Well, he started in in chapter 7, verse 58, as a bystander to Stephen's martyrdom. But by chapter 8, verse 1, he's given full assent. He is in agreement with what's happening. And by verse 3 of chapter 8, he is fully involved. He is public enemy number one if you're a Christian in this city. He's dragging him into the streets, locking him up in prison. Men and women, Paul has begun, Saul rather, has begun this ravaging persecution. And then the script changes. The attention turns in Luke's narrative in verse 4. Luke has a pattern. He uses the same Greek phrase throughout the book of Acts to move the plot along, to show you that we're, we're moving along now. It's this now then or now again Your Bible might just say now. It's there in verse 4 and 9 and 25 and 14. We're going to see it over and over throughout the book of Acts. Now those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And the crowds were with one accord, listened eagerly to the signs, uh, seeing the signs that he did. So beginning in verse 4, the story of the church's witness in all of Judea and Samaria begins. They've now gone out. They've been scattered like seed. And this section of Acts will extend all the way to chapter 11. And by the end of chapter 11, all of Judea will be evangelized. All of Judea will have been proclaimed this word because of the persecution that scatters these Christians. And it begins with Philip's witness among the Samaritans. Now, the significance of Samaritans is well rehearsed in Bible class. Hopefully you know that this is a rub, that there's no love lost between Jews and Samaritan. They might worship the same God, but the Samaritans don't have the same temple or the same holy place. They are traditionally impure, religiously tainted, politically treacherous as they conspire with the Roman occupation. Samaritans were outcasts in the household of Israel. And so it's <clears throat> on purpose, it's not by accident that the gospel begins to be proclaimed there. The synoptic gospels have Jesus avoiding Samaria, but John's version, John's Jesus in John chapter 4 says this detour has to be taken. The gospel must go there. And it was reiterated in Acts 
chapter 1. And as we encounter these people, we learn that the Samaritans had been hearing about a man. There was a man who, who's, the knowledge of whom was spreading throughout their land. There were some characteristics about him that they knew. That he performed amazing things. Miracles, even. That he amazed the Samaritans. We're told they were amazed by him. They listened to him eagerly because of the power that he had. In fact, they began to call him the power of God. Now, who are we talking about? It could be Jesus. You might be thinking that the word of Jesus has spread because of maybe that woman at the well has begun to tell her friends, but it's not Jesus that we meet. It's not word of him that spread through Samaria. It's somebody else. A man that church tradition has attributed with all kinds of heresies. His legacy has lived on, if not somewhat made up. But Simon the Great, they call him. And so chapter 8 tells us that the crowds were with one accord, listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with loud streaks, shrieks came out of many who were possessed and many others who were paralyzed or lame or cured so there was a great joy in that city but it wasn't philip who had the greatest reputation in samaria at this time it was in verse 9 a certain man named simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of samaria saying that he was someone great all of them from the least to the greatest, listen to him eagerly saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. He's a magician. He's got tricks. He performs illusion. He gains a crowd. From the least to the greatest, they know who he is. Many have said that Harry Houdini is the greatest magician of all time. Certainly when you say magician or illusionist or escape artist, his name comes to the forefront. Most notably, he was a master of breaking free of handcuffs. He could escape from all kinds of things. Some of his most famous escapes involved water. Houdini, you may remember, had the famous milk can escape. Some call it the best escape ever invented. They poured gallons of water into the giant jug before he was handcuffed and folded himself inside. The milk can was secured and shut by six padlocks. And after just two minutes, Houdini emerges breathless from a nearby cabinet while the can remains locked. A promotional poster for the escape featured the tagline, Failure means a drowning death. In fact, Houdini was Quoted as having said, if you want to draw large crowds, just have people believe that the uh, other option to success is certain death. That's one way to draw a crowd, I guess. He also invented the water torture cell, is famous for his hanging straight jacket escape. He was once buried alive, six feet underground under pounds of dirt, and after clawing his way to the surface, assistants pulled the unconscious magician the rest of the way out. He attempted the escape a second time inside of a casket in a hotel pool in 1920. The final version of the buried alive escape was supposed to happen on a stage, but Houdini died before the escape routine could be added to his shows. He didn't die in the box. He didn't die in an escape. It was 
a ruptured appendix that took his life. Simon was the Houdini of his day. He made small boys climb ropes and disappear. He sawed pretty girls in half. He pulled rabbits out of hats and levitated volunteers in the audience. And he made a good living out of it too. People knew who this guy was. He could draw a crowd. And so Luke introduces us to two different people full of power. Two power brokers that are in Samaria at the time. One named Philip who's moving by the power of a new spirit. A gift he's been given by God. And another, Simon, who the people from the least to the greatest know well. All of them, in verse 10, listened to him eagerly and said, This man is the power of God that is called great. They listened to him eagerly because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. He was constantly amazed, we're told. So there you have it. Philip's prophetic power is the Holy Spirit. And Simon's power of magic is overcome. He's amazed by this person who's come into town. He's impressed by what's going on here. And like all these other Samaritans who are hearing about what's occurred, he believes, it said. And many of them were baptized. As Philip proclaims the gospel, Simon takes note. But according to the end of verse 13 here, the real indication is that Simon's responding like those in Acts who are unbelievers. Those who don't fully believe. We're told that he was amazed at what took place. It's the kind of thing that the crowd does and then moves on. You see, Simon is more impressed with the spectacular than he is with the spiritual. He's more impressed with the spectacular than he is with the spiritual. And by the end of the story, we'll learn that Simon never understood this spirit all the way, never really had a grasp for the kind of power Philip possessed. But we get a shift in the plot In verse 14, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. So some of the apostles from Jerusalem come here to Philip. They're not coming to to supersede him necessarily or to uh, grab at the, the stake that he's now claimed. This is really just the apostles taking their authority to this new place and introducing the gospel. It was part of their practice so Peter and John, who, come, uh, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now there's something to be said about the order that this is all happening. It's, it's unique to Acts, but there is no real formula as the gospel spreads, at least 
Luke is not trying to convey to us in a particular precise order that baptism and baptism of the Spirit are supposed to occur. We just learn here that they've been baptized by water and then later the apostles come and make sure that they've received the Spirit. They do it by the laying on of hands. But they're also very concerned that these new believers have the Spirit because this is an essential part of receiving the gospel. The Spirit needed to come to these new believers and so they are helping that happen and it draws more interest. As this spirit comes upon them, Simon takes notice again. He saw that the spirit was being bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So the plot shifted back to Simon and he asks for power. He asks for authority, the authority that they had. And he wants to buy it. He wants to have it. He wants to add this trick to all of his others. Maybe this new spirit, this could take him places one last time finale to his best act if he had this spirit and so he tries to buy it from the apostles and they're not having it I can remember as a preteen a middle schooler probably I guess I was uh oh I don't know about awkward years old and I was walking around the mall with my mother as awkward middle schoolers do. And I beheld the most amazing thing I thought I'd ever seen. You see, like a lot of young people, uh, there was that like 10 seconds where I was really interested in magic. And then you learn that sleight of hand is actually really challenging and you have to learn it and practice it and you can't just go around performing magic tricks. So you learn a few card tricks, you try to find a few magic tricks and there, standing in the hallway of the mall was a magician. I was convinced he was impressive. He was holding in both of his hands a red light. I figured it was a small round ball that glowed red. He had one in each hand. He could throw them back and forth like it was nothing, toss them up in the air, and then he took one of those red lighted balls in his hand and sniffed it up his nose. Oh, if that didn't get the attention of a middle school boy, what does? (laughs) I'll tell you what else does. He next pulled it out of his mouth. And then he did it with the other one. And then he threw it up in the air and he caught it behind his back and threw it up from behind his back and caught it in front of him. And then he took one of them and he swallowed it. Whoa, where's this going? (laughs) The next thing he did was reach in from the front and pull it right out of his stomach. Magic, I thought. So I coaxed my mother to taking me inside that magic store because I was going to get to the bottom of this. It was for sale, right? Everything there was for sale. We approached the guy at the counter looking to buy this magic red ball or whatever it was that made him perform this trick because that could entertain some people. You know, if a middle school boy shows up with that trick at school, 
Yeah, the whole courtyard amazed. I was convinced I was the next Houdini. Well, the man proceeds to tell us that you can buy that trick. It's for sale, actually, uh, but they don't reveal their magic tricks until you buy them. That should have been the first indication, but I didn't know any better. So for $20, and it was $20, you could purchase this magic trick. And then after purchasing it, one of the employees would be glad to take you into the back room behind the black curtain, open the box, and explain to you exactly how this trick works and begin teaching you what it was. So we paid our $20, we took our box, the employee magician, probably a college dropout, I don't know, took us in the back behind a black curtain, opens the box, and there it is. The secret to the red glowing ball I could swallow and pull out of my stomach, that I could sniff up my nose and cough up the next second. He pulled out of the box a fake rubber thumb that you could slide onto your thumb, and when you pushed it against your finger, it lit up. Magic. A fake thumb that cost $20. When I was walking in there, I thought, there's no way this is not worth 20 bucks. This is worth 50. I'd give 100 if I had it. I walked out of there thinking this wasn't worth 25 cents. Yeah, I learned how to do it. I figured out how it worked. I fooled a few people. It was neat. But it wasn't the trick that I really wanted to have. Now, Simon has seen something and something in his belief, a commodity worth having, a a trick, a magic trick that he wants to add to his arsenal. He knows that this power is nothing like any power he's had. He's only had illusions of power. And now real power has showed up, and he wants to have it. And somewhere in there, we're told that he believes. And so I have to think that he even got caught up in the real power going on here, enough to follow Philip around and try and figure out who this Jesus and this spirit really are. But somewhere along the lines, he gets confused and starts thinking that the spirit is a commodity he can purchase and use for his own gain. And it turns out that in trying to buy this new trick, he finds one of the greatest illusions of all. That the Spirit of God can be used to do whatever it is you wish. Or another illusion, that you can have what you like about the Spirit without the whole thing. Or another illusion, that the Spirit of God is for sale. And he discovers real quickly that the kingdom cannot be purchased or self-possessed. The spirit moves as it wills. The spirit is given by God as a gift to those whom he's chosen. This is not a spectacle. It's about the spiritual. And so Simon goes down in history as somewhat of a swindler, someone who misunderstands the word simony even comes to mean uh, to purchase religious office or power. He gets put into vocabulary for how wrong he gets it. And here's the response in verse 21. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent 
of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And Simon answers and says, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You know, one of the fascinating things about this moment in the Acts story, uh, last week we looked at how a number of historians have tracked the growth of the Christian movement and marveled at the, the way that it has grown without political power uh, to help it. And here, in this moment, the church has not yet exploded. It's by no means a worldwide movement yet. They're scattered like seeds because they're being run out of town. And here they get to Samaria, and the best-known person in town, the most famous thing around, the best show in Samaria comes to them and says, I'll take what you're giving out. And how do they respond? You know, they're at the very moment a movement might need to gain some traction. And they could use a guy like this, if you ask me. I mean, he might explode the numbers. He could pack the pews. He's already done it before. From the least to the greatest, they know who this guy is. If the church would just hitch its wagon to this famous person, think how far they could go. They could take the gospel anywhere with a sideshow like this. And the same temptation plagues us today, doesn't it? That the church again and again is tempted to hitch its wagon to the most popular horse around, to equate its movement with the next politician that comes around, to grab the next famous celebrity Christian and say, he's one of us, she's like us. And at what cost? Here, at the moment that the movement could most use a little bit of fame and popularity. It's the faithfulness of the people, faithfulness to the Spirit, that the apostles are most concerned with. And churches all over and throughout the ages have been tempted to nestle up to whatever power might help advance their cause or whatever person might help grow the numbers in some way or another. And the apostles have this amazing ability to look at Simon and to say, anything that compromises the mission we're on and the spirit that we know has no place in our midst. They won't have it. They send him away immediately. They don't even say like, hey, here's a trial run. Maybe you can give this a shot and come around. No, they say, you have no part or portion in this matter. Because anything that compromises the Spirit of God has no place in his body. And they're convinced of this. And it is faithfulness, not fame, that they believe will take them where God wants them. And that's where the Spirit is going. Simon answers, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. He acknowledges The power that they have, the power even to help him get forgiveness for the wrongs they've now pointed out. In this section 
of the chapter ends in verse 25 as it says, Now after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. By the time we reach Luke's concluding summary in chapter 8, verse 40, Acts will have recounted conversions from every corner that now constitutes the whole house of Israel. Resident Jews from Jerusalem to pilgrims in the most distant regions, from pious Jews that are the most devout to their heritage to those that are most detached from it. Why is that? Well, Luke is preparing us for what's next, for the shocking and unexpected next turn the gospel is going to take another Jewish convert who will carry the word of God beyond just Israel and all of its house, including the Samaritans, beyond that to be a light to the nations, an instrument whom God has chosen to bring his name before the Gentiles. So here in chapter 8, we meet these surprising Samaritan converts and Simon the Great who teach us that the gospel is on the move to Judea and Samaria. But no compromise of the Spirit will be worth selling out the purpose and the mission. Just like it tempted them, just like many churches and groups and Christian movements are tempted to sell out in this way today, so are we, tempted in every way to say that the Spirit can do what we want. It can be another power we add to our bag of tricks. And if we do that, we fall into the same illusion that traps Simon, the belief that we can have some of the Spirit alongside everything else we wish to do in this life and have received the kingdom of God. But the spirit that's on the move in Acts is a spirit that demands whole persons. It demands to be in the middle of our lives with everything else oriented around it to transform believers from the inside out. And some get it, but many walk away because they wanted to use the spirit for their own gain or to do their own bidding or to be one more thing amongst their life. The challenge we hear from Acts 8 and from Simon the Great, is that the Spirit of God is a gift given to us from God and for God. Let it be so of us also that we receive His Spirit as a gift from God and for God, that we may be His people in this place at this time. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your spirit. We give you thanks for the lives and witness of these faithful believers who proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, beginning with Jerusalem and moving out into Judea and Samaria. God, reveal to us every corner of our life where we have lived by the illusion that the spirit doesn't need to change that or transform us or fix that. Father, we desire to have your spirit in every area of our lives to follow you where you would lead us. We pray that you would lead us even now. In Jesus' name, amen.